Um, like I said, my name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here at Restoration, and we're really glad that you're here with us. We're in week three out of four weeks of Advent. And so in the first week of Advent, we looked at uh, hope and where our hope comes from and how hope was initially promised in Genesis 3.15, and then God was faithful to keep his promise that he made then, and he brought it through into completion when Christ was born and later died in our place and for our sins, bruising the head of the serpent. And last week, we looked at peace and how in Genesis 1 and 2, the world was created peaceful, or as the Hebrew word for it is shalom. There was shalom in the world. Everything operating, functioning exactly how God had designed it until sin entered the world in Genesis 3 and how Christ has worked to bring us back to peace with God by ending the hostility between us and God, us as sinners, God and his holiness and righteousness. And Christ was our substitute who ended the hostility and granted us peace. And so tonight we are going to set our hearts and our minds on joy. And then next week we will look at love as we round out Advent and get ready to go into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Hope, peace, love, joy, the four words, they're all over the place throughout Christmas. They're on every card, they're on every t-shirt or so it seems, they're on every good Hallmark movie or bad Hallmark movie depending on your preference for said movies. And our goal as we've been together, our goal both tonight and uh, next week, our goal in the past two weeks has been this, that we would see how these four words don't arrive on the scene when Jesus arrives on the scene. It's not as if God, as he is displayed and communicated to us in the Old Testament, was absent of hope and peace and love and joy. These words all come from God's character. They all find their meaning in God's character, and they all find unique fulfillment in the birth of Christ. And so we want to see how from Genesis to Revelation, each word helps us understand the entirety of the story of Scripture. We've stopped just short of really diving into the New Testament ways that these words are defined because we're just going up until the birth of Christ. But we know the truth of how these words find even more fulfillment when you go from the birth of Christ to the life of Christ to the death of Christ and to the resurrection of Christ. And so we're stopping at the birth but you know the fullness of these words in their biblical meaning. Tonight, we set our hearts and our minds on joy, and joy is not momentary happiness for us believers that we only experience when everything is going right from our perspective. That is not what biblical joy is, nor is joy the momentary happiness we get from material goods nor is joy primarily tied to physical pleasures. Those are the ways that the world would define joy. But that is not how the Bible helps us understand joy. No, the joy of Advent for the believer is the joy that comes through being reminded that God in Christ has drawn near to us. Let's pray. Father, we've sang it. We've heard it read from Isaiah. We've heard it read from 1 Peter. We've heard it read from Psalm 126. We're going to look at it throughout the Old Testament tonight. Father, you are a joyous God. So often we only think of you primarily as the law giver. And that is what you are in part. But that does not tell the entirety of your character and your nature. And I pray that tonight we would just get a glimpse of how joyous you are as our Father. How joyous you've always been. 
And I pray it would stir in us a deep longing for the joy that will one day be ours when we see Christ face to face. So, Father, as we spend some time in your word, as we spend time responding in a few moments, would it just be marked by joy? Joy that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven. Joy that comes from knowing that if we are in Christ, that your smile is set upon us. Joy that comes from knowing that we have a hope and we have a future stored up where it will not lose value, where it will not perish, but where it grows sweeter every day. Father, help us to be ambassadors of your joy in a lost and dying world. In Christ's name, amen. As with peace, which we looked at last week, joy is present within the first two chapters of Genesis. When everything was created and God declared it good because it was how he had made it and designed it to function, and everything was going as it was meant to in the first two chapters of Genesis, peace was accompanied by the joy of uninterrupted communion between Adam and Eve and the God who created them and breathed life into them. Peace and joy are often very closely linked with each other, not only in Scripture, but in our own lives. It's often easiest to experience and know the truths of the joy of our salvation when we are reminded of the peace that our salvation has brought us. As those who were once hostile to God have been made righteous before God through the finished work of Christ. When we read in Genesis 3, 22 through 24, that God removes Adam and Eve after the fall from the garden, the place where they enjoyed sweet fellowship with God, we see the end of joy as it was intended to be. Just as peace was fractured and ended in those first three chapters of Genesis, so too our joy was interrupted, our joy was broken, because God expels Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, where before the fall they had enjoyed walks in the cool of the evening with the God who had created them. This was the source of their joy in life, and it was a joy that they forfeited, and it was a joy that they lost, and it's a joy that we've all missed in part because we have inherited the sin of our first parents down through the ages. And so when God sets Adam and Eve outside of the garden and sends them east of Eden and sets the angel to guard the entrance into the garden, that is also a picture of the end of the joy of Adam and Eve because they are now no longer allowed back in the place where they had experienced the closeness and the communion of walking with their creator in the cool of the garden, which was where their joy found its beginning. Being removed from the garden, they were removed from the nearness of God's presence. And it is in God's presence where true joy is found. And so it was in that moment that true, lasting joy was lost. However, much like peace, God, throughout the Old Testament, continues to instruct his people in joy as a means to increase their desire and expectation of the coming Messiah who would restore them to a fullness of joy that the law couldn't provide. 
If you go back and you honestly read the law as God handed it down to Moses, if you can slug through in your yearly Bible reading plan, you get through the highs and lows of Genesis and the first part of Exodus, if you can get through the back half of Exodus, through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you can get your mind in a big picture way around the law, there's a very real sense that to abide by the law was to do the bare minimum to be kept in right relationship with God. But there's not very much joy wrapped up in how obedience is communicated to God's people. Because when, when Adam and Eve leave the garden, and when God chooses Israel as his people, when he leads them in an exodus out of Egypt, and when he gives them the law, the law serves as a very cold, a very, how would be a better word to say, a very non-joyous mediator between God and his people. Because the law was meant to stir in us a desire for a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so what God does from Genesis 3.15 on through the rest of the Old Testament is he instructs his people in joy and all the different facets and aspects of joy that are to be theirs. And it's all meant to increase in them a desire for one who could restore them to a right relationship with God so that they could enjoy nearness and communion with God that just wasn't possible through the law. And so what I want to do tonight is look briefly at some of the key teachings of joy from the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a disclaimer. I'm about to give you a boatload, and I mean a boatload of Scripture references. They're not going to be on the screen. I'm not going to read them all. We'll be here until next Sunday this time. If you want the references I'm about to give you, just catch me after the service. I can email you the manuscript. You can have it. There's just going to be a lot that I'm going to walk through in a short order of time, so don't try to write them all down. Just listen, and then if you want these afterwards, I can send them over to you. This comes from Tori's New Topical Textbook. Again, these are Old Testament teachings about all the different aspects of joy. God's word affords joy. Nehemiah 8, 12 and Jeremiah 15, 16. Joy is promised to the saints. Psalm 132, 16, Isaiah 35, 10, Isaiah 55, 12, and Isaiah 56, 7. Joy is prepared for the saints. Psalm 97, 11. Joy is enjoined to the saints. Psalm 32, 11. Joy is experienced by peacemakers. Proverbs 12, 20. Joy is experienced by the just. Proverbs 21, 15. Joy is experienced by the wise. Proverbs 15, 23. Joy is increased to the meek. Isaiah 29, 19. The joy of the saints is for salvation. Psalm 21, 1. Isaiah 61, 10. The joy of the saints is for deliverance from bondage. Psalm 105, 43. Jeremiah 31, 10 through 13. The joy of... The joy of the saints is for the manifestation of goodness, 2 Chronicles 7.10. The joy of the saints is for temporal blessings, Joel 2.23 and 24. The joy of the saints is for supplies of grace, Isaiah 12.3. The joy of the saints is for divine protection, Psalm 5.11 and Psalm 16.8 and 9. The joy of the saints is for divine support, Psalm 28.7, Psalm 63.7. We still got a long way to go. The Old Testament teaches us a ton about all that makes up the joy in the life of a believer. The joy of the saints should be great, Zechariah 9, 9. The joy of the saints should be exceeding, Psalm 21, 6 and Psalm 68, 3. The joy of the saints should be animated, Psalm 32, 11. 
The joy of the saint should be filled with all, Psalm 2, 11. The afflictions of the saints should be succeeded by joy, Psalm 30, 25, Psalm 126, 5, and Isaiah 35, 10. Saints should pray for the restoration of joy, Psalm 51, verses 8 and 12, Psalm 85, 6. Saints should serve God with joy, Psalm 102. Joy is strengthening to the saints, Nehemiah 8:10. Saints should engage all religious services with joy, Ezra 6:22 and Psalm 42:4. Saints should have joy in all their undertakings, Deuteronomy 12:18. And then this is what the Bible says that pertains to the joy of the wicked. The joy of the of the wicked is derived from earth, earthly pleasures. Ecclesiastes 2.10 and Ecclesiastes 11.9. The joy of the wicked is derived from folly, Proverbs 15.21. The joy of the wicked is delusive, Proverbs 14.13. The joy of the wicked is short-lived, Job 20.5 and Ecclesiastes 7.6. The joy of the wicked will be taken away, Isaiah 16.10. Aren't you glad I didn't read all those references? I mean, we'd still be on like the first one. I'd be, I'd be like, all right, I'm tagging out. Somebody else coming up and reading for a little bit. Y'all all had like three or four references uh, to read tonight. The reason I included all those references in there is because often when people either come to faith or as you walk through your faith or if you're talking to people who aren't believers, they have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is just angry and ticked off and looking to kill people for whatever reason he can find. But what you see if you really study and look at the word in the Old Testament is that God was communicating the fact that he is a joyous God who wants to give joy to those who would love and follow him with their whole heart. So what the Old Testament shows is not only was God joyous, but God wasn't going to to lower the bar of righteousness and holiness just to make people happy for a moment. The reason we don't read very much about God's people in the Old Testament being all happy-go-lucky with joy is because they were incapable of obeying God in the first place. And obedience to God, just like with the peace of God that we looked at last week, obedience to God was the prerequisite to enjoy the joy of God. In the same way, obedience was commanded to enjoy the peace of God. And so it wasn't that God was this grumpy old man sitting in heaven looking for some people to exact his anger on. But what you see in all of the Old Testament over and over and over again are the people of God called by God, unable to live obediently to God because their hearts have not been changed. And so peace and joy are there in the Old Testament, but they are so rare to see lived out in the lives of God's people because their hearts haven't been changed. The law is cold and calculating in how it relates to us relating to the God who has created us. And the law was unable to change the hearts of men and women to love God and to love others. And so I read all those verses to you tonight give you all those references so that we would see, so that we would understand in the flow of the narrative arc of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God has always been joyous. But his people have been sinful and stubborn and robbed themselves of the joy that God so readily offers. 
joy is described with sweeping scope in the Old Testament. Biblical joy, if you take it for what it is in all of those references, and you were to read on into the New Testament about the implications of joy for the life of a believer, you would see that biblical joy works its way into every nook and cranny of our life. There really is no area of the life of a believer that should not be characterized by joy. Even more so this side of the cross when we understand who Christ is and what he has done to save and redeem us. It doesn't mean we as believers don't have bad days. Amen? Amen. It doesn't mean that we don't have moments where we don't lose our cool in Wilmington traffic. Say amen again. I'm kidding. No. But joy should be one of the key markers of the life of a believer. We do not follow society's lead where cynicism is elevated over joy as the chief characteristic of someone who understands life in this world. We follow the lead of our risen and rescuing king and joy marks our life. Cynicism is the coward's way out. Joy is the believer's way through. With all this talk of joy, from the Old Testament specifically, nowhere in there was there mentioned the most important part of joy, the point on which all of the above-mentioned aspects of joy hinge, and that is God himself. If we're honest, we think we want all those aspects of joy, but we get none of them unless we have the God who gives the joy first. God is the giver of joy. Psalm 4, 7 says, You, meaning God, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And it is God who is the object of our, our joy. Isaiah 29, 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And lastly, it is God alone who provides the fullness of our joy. Psalm 16:11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is the giver. God is the object, and God alone provides the fullness for joy in the life of a believer. Before you ever get to all those other areas where joy impacts your life, you have to understand and you have to give yourself to the truth that your first primary source of joy is from God himself. He is the object, he is the giver, he is the fulfiller which completely removes any and all understanding of our processing our joy based off of our circumstances. Our joy is first and foremost understood by understanding and knowing who our God is. And so if you want all the other blessings of joy that are listed in the Old and New Testament, you have to decide what you're going to do with the God who gives the joy in the first place. You're going to have to decide what you're going to do with the God who is the object of all true believers' joy. You're going to have to decide if God alone 
will really fulfill your joy. And so when we flip our Bibles from the Old to the New Testament, and you only got to go one page into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. On the first page of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 23, we read these words at the end of the genealogy of Jesus, 22 into 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was the angel speaking to Joseph. When the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, we see God drawing near to us and inviting us to partake of and enjoy the joy that he has always had in himself. We see God removing the law as a mediator and giving us himself in his son as our mediator. We see the promise of a new heart dawning this is such an overwhelming truth that our human language falls woefully short in being able to describe what will be the experience of those who trust christ not only in this life for joy but for joy in the life to come the scope of what the angel says in Matthew 1.23 is so vast and so overwhelming and so loaded with meaning that we could, I could give the rest of my life trying to help us understand. We could just preach Matthew 1.23 for the next 15 years and we couldn't uncover all that it means for Christ to be Emmanuel, God with us. This is such a monumental statement in the life of God's people. That he would be Emmanuel, God with us. And if he is going to be God with us, that means that we no longer have to depend on the law to gain us access to God the Father. But now we will freely come through the one who obeyed the law perfectly in our place, thereby canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the tree and granting us who in and of ourselves could not generate joy because we couldn't generate obedience, grants us the ability to have new hearts and new life so that we would have direct direct access to the God whose joy our first parents forsook in the garden through the finished work of his son. And we now know joy that none of us deserve. It is all grace freely given by that baby that was born in that manger over 2,000 years ago. Emmanuel, God with us. Because God knew what had been lost in all the preceding generations leading up to that moment. God knew that true joy was found in Him being with us. And He also knew that we were hopeless to get to Him on our own. So He didn't send the law. He didn't send the law 2.0 to try to give us another way to get to Him. He remedied the problem by coming to be with us. And that is a cause for great joy in the life of a believer. So when we read about the birth of Jesus, we see in his birth the beginning of a journey that would take him to the cross so that we, sinners unable to save ourselves, would be restored to fellowship with God our Father. The joy that comes with the incarnation is the joy of that which was lost in Eden 
being restored to us. Namely, fellowship with God the Father through the imputed righteousness and obedience of the Son, Jesus Christ. We have cause for joy tonight. I like how the scripture I read from the New Testament. Though you have not seen him, you love him and you rejoice with an exceedingly great joy. And it is so hard sometimes with all that life throws at us, with all that we experience right in front of our face that feels so overwhelming, it's easy for us to lose sight of the monumental truth of Christmas, which is Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. You're not going at this life alone. You're not going at this life white-knuckling your way through, hoping that God remembers you. You're going through this life with the assurance of joy that can only come because you've seen the truth of Christmas for what it is, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he was so committed to being with us that in eternity past, he had agreed to come to the cross and experience not having the Father with him if but for a brief moment, to pay the penalty for your sin. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel on the cross so that God would be with us. Emmanuel raised from the grave so that we could have the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. God with us us Emmanuel who sits on the throne reigning and ruling in sovereign perfection over everything happening in our world so that one day he will come again and he will right all the wrongs and we will see fully and finally the truth of Emmanuel God with us that is a cause for joy tonight let's pray